This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The very best bits of today's show. It is a Monday morning, the 5th of February. Let's kick off with a big breaking story that happened just as we went on air this morning. Front page of the Financial Times, Emirates Airline. The boss, Tim Clark, has given an interview saying Boeing is in the last chance saloon when it comes to problems with manufacturing and safety. We've been speaking to the aviation lawyer, Nick Humphrey, a partner at Norton White. What else can I tell you? Been speaking about money, where to put yours. Maurice Gravier, Group Chief Investment Officer, Emirates MBD. Not the most upbeat assessment of your investment options in 2024. Expect modest returns and high volatility, says Maurice. Then the jobs market, which is bittersweet at the moment. The good news, US jobs report on Friday was absolutely brilliant. 353,000 new jobs created in America, way ahead of expectations. However, big companies continue to axe jobs. The latest of them on Friday was Deutsche Bank axing 3,500. We've been speaking to the recruitment expert Asad Jamil of Robert Walters. And finally, talking to the guys at Zabuni. Rami Asaf is the CEO and co-founder. All that to come. First up, though, let's get straight into that big aviation story. No shortage of aviation stories doing the rounds at the moment, including one of our big business headlines. Emirates has warned Boeing it's in the, get this, last chance saloon. This is an interview that Tim Clark has given to the Financial Times, breaking this morning. And that is the phrase he has used. He says it's safety issues that are the big concern for Emirates. Of course, they've got massive orders of uh, Boeing's on order at the moment, the 777 in particular, and the 787 Dreamliner for Emirates. Their sister company, Fly Dubai, big orders of 737s as well. And they're sending, as Tom said, their own team of engineers over to the United States to oversee production. Let's get some reaction to this now. Nick Humphrey is an aviation lawyer, partner with Norton White, joins us live on the line. He's in Australia right now. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Good morning and good afternoon. Is this just sabre-rattling from Tim Clark, someone you know well, or is he serious? Tim has never been, sorry, Sir Tim has never been backward with his views on um, the manufacturers. And through the years, um, particularly as, let's say, the primary customer back with the A380 and with the various issues the A380 had and the engines had, he was always very pointed with his views about this. Now, I guess we call it the sabre rattling. Um, we've, we've all seen with production um, delays um, and now with forward-looking manufacturing orders, Airlines are really reliant on the supply chain of their manufacturing, um, you know, at, at the, the manufacturers of the aircraft to forward plan how your airline will look over the next 10 to 20 years. And Emirates has become very reliant on the Boeing 777 in particular. So it's got 250 aircraft on order. And, and will it pull out of, of these orders? I doubt it. What's it going to do? It's got to make sure it can do all it can to ensure efficiency, quality control, and real speed of getting getting these things out. And the thing is, they don't want them to come out and then be grounded. And that's been another issue with, with some of the supply chain issues that Boeing has encountered. So whilst it says last chance saloon, does this mean that 
you know, this is the threat that if you don't, that we will withdraw. I don't think so, but it's pretty strong words. Could these strong words, though, do for the bosses at Boeing? The CEO um, and the uh, Dave Calhoun and the commercial head Stan Deal. Um, one of the things that Sir Tim has said in this interview is that only time will tell if they're the right people for the job. Yeah, Boeing has been under crisis management for a long time now. Um, and Dave Calhoun in particular has overseen a number of crises, not of his creation, but he's been in the seat long enough to put the ship of their commercial manufacturing in line. Um, they've tried to do that, particularly if you look most immediately, it'll be the 787 that will be um, delivered, planned to be delivered next year with Emirates. Um, and the big issue with that aircraft was that they split manufacturing across the US. Now all the manufacturing's moved to South Carolina, but that's still, in accordance to Sir Tim, is still a problem. Um, now, time will tell, I guess. We've also got, you know, um, management of and the future management of Emirates, um, because Sir Tim won't be around whilst this, the, the long order of the 777-9, um, uh, for example, which isn't scheduled to be delivered to 2030. So he's wanting to ensure that Emirates is in order to manage these issues. But, you know, look, Emirates isn't alone. You've had less orders like Aircap. They've been very critical as well. Um, so Boeing is getting a lot of pressure. But when you've got essentially a duopoly across the world in aircraft manufacturers, the strife that Boeing's under, it will continue to manufacture aircraft and there'll still be demand for their aircraft. So there's, it's a play of economics and play of realities as well. Let's look at what's going to happen in terms of, of Boeing and, and these engineers on the ground. How does that work? Is there any precedent for this? Not that I've heard of. And you know, the ultimate responsibility for manufacturing falls with um, the manufacturer and not the airline customer. I'm not sure how this would work, whether Boeing will facilitate with having letting them have an office and join team meetings and production meetings and whatever. It's it is pretty unprecedented. Yeah, you know, look, you know, airline customers will visit facilities from time to time, and particularly when there's aircraft deliveries, they may have a tour. But this is the next step. So, I, you know, it's whilst it's a this this has been it, um, indicated it'll happen. It'll be interesting to see how the plan really plays out and how receptive and willing Boeing is to allow. Yeah, it's customers, because if one customer's allowed in, the others might come knocking. Nick, really appreciate you joining us at short notice this morning. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. That's the thoughts of Nick Humphrey. He's an aviation lawyer, a partner with the law firm Norton White. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's stay with the markets now and where to invest your money in 2024. Maurice Gravier is the Group Chief Investment Officer of Emirates MBD. He's with us in the studio. Morning, Maurice. Good morning. Reading your investment outlook for this year, and it's, it's not gloomy, but it's fairly restrained, modest returns, you say, and high volatility. Explain. Oh, yeah. The, the, you know, last year we called 2023 the year of unpredictability. And it, there were lots of questions. And 2024 is going to be about answers. So our central scenario is not adverse. We expect a soft landing, you know, growth slowing enough to contain inflation. So there will be red cuts, but it's not a recession. The issue is that since the last year's year-end rally, this has become very consensual and it is partially priced in. So we expect low expected returns because it's partially priced in. The upside potential is not huge. Why? 
while this consensus will be questioned, it will be questioned by data. We have seen last week, you know, the US job report, which was spectacular. It will be questioned by data, by elections everywhere and by geopolitics. So hence the volatility. Well, let's look at the bigger picture, the macro picture now, because as you say, it's brightening up. We've had the IMF just uh, a week or so ago, raising their forecast for global outlook. And the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, very bullish on the US economy. Let's hear from Jay Powell. This was him speaking a few days ago, not in last night's telly interview, but when the, the interest rate decision came out, everyone focused on what he had to say about interest rates and inflation. But actually, on the, on the US economy, he's very bullish. Let's hear from him. I mean, if you take a step back, we've had strong growth, very strong growth last year, going right into the fourth quarter. And yet we've had a very strong labor market and we've had inflation coming down. So I think we, we look at stronger growth. We don't look at it as a problem. I think at this point we want to see strong growth. Great. Strong growth. Which asset classes will benefit from this? Again, the issue is that strong growth is partially priced in, especially by, uh, for equities. We think that this year is more about, uh, you know, bonds will pay their coupon, uh, more or less. We don't expect capital appreciation there. And with regards to stocks, they should rise in line with their earnings. So we are not, we, we are not negative, by the way, but we're talking about relatively modest re- return. There is no room for multiple expansion. We have a tendency to like more emerging market stocks. You know, we like this uh, almost every year than developed market stocks because the growth differential, according to the very same IM, will be in favour of emerging economies looking forward. So well, let's look at some of the thematic themes that you have in your report for 2024. Big section on India. Yes, it's the world's fastest growing major economy. They've got an election this year. Modi expected to get a third term. And yet, Sensex and the Nifty, the index is at record highs. Do we stick or twist on India? We stick on India because uh, uh, this is the genuine um, emerging economy story, which is basically increasing the GDP per capita. And they start with still a low base. Of course, it's, um, uh, I must admit, there will be volatility again because it's, uh, it's a global investors' darling within emerging markets. But for a reason, because you have this dynamic of uh, going from three, four thousand US dollar GDP per capita to hopefully six, seven, eight. And the, uh, the Indian economy has very robust structural drivers of growth. And in terms of governance, it's also companies that are very, very well run compared to other regions in emerging markets. So we stick to it, even if we will have some volatility, of course. Well, you say one of the investment tactics that you have is you talk about being cautious with some expensive and crowded assets classes. And you said there is a differential among names. So this is not a case of just buying the market, buying the Nifty or the Sensex. How do you invest in India? Definitely, it's all about, and I would say in a, in a broader view that India, we believe in active management for the year, for the year this year and for the years to come. You know, the last year have been all about mega uh, top-down drivers, such as the Fed, such as, you know, the pandemic, the rebound and everything. We think that looking forward, uh, the leeway of action for central banks is lower, so they will less dominate markets, which means more differentiation. The growth will be slower, and if you gain market share, it's better. So we believe in selectivity looking ahead rather than replicating indices that have become our a bit imbalanced. Okay. Another one of the themes that you have is, is industry sectors. I know you look in particular at AI sure. and you look at obesity drugs, which yes. have been booming. But again, my question is, I get it. Um, the time to buy NVIDIA was two years ago. The time to buy Neuro Nordisk, which makes Azempic, the weight loss drug, was maybe two years ago. 
How do we play it now, Maurice, in February 2024? Sure. First, I must say to the credit of Anita, our head of equity, uh, she was in uh, NVIDIA and Novo Nordisk two years ago. Uh, with regards to AI, uh, she thinks, because I will uh, just read her message, that now it's not the time to focus on enablers, which was this, uh, the, 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 these names before, but on adopters, the people who will benefit from AI. And uh, because it's right that uh, in AI valuation as a sector, you have implicit promises that will have to be fulfilled. And that's another thing that we expect in the year of answers. When it comes to obesity, frankly, it's a brand new category that has such a potential that we think it's not over. Again, markets tend to overreact on the short term to um, to pricing everything in the short term, but sometimes they miss uh, they misappreciate the longer term impact, and we're there for the long term with regards to obesity. Okay, message is coming in now. I'm going to throw this one at you. Arno is a regular listener, Morning Arno, and he's very bullish on um, Bitcoin in particular, and is has reservations about fiat money. So that's his that that's the background to Arno. But here's what he has to say: All in Bitcoin, nothing is bullish. We have entered a debt spiral. The end of this scam is near. The end of the Fed. That is not the business breakfast house view, but I put it to you, Maurice. Your thoughts. Well, if it is the end of the of the fiat currencies, we 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 are in big trouble. And uh, and um, and um, uh, well, first we do not advise on cryptocurrencies. We look at them, of course. We do not advise on uh, on them. We have some sympathy for the fact that uh, it could be nice to have some currency you cannot print, and uh, we express that through an overweight in gold. And um, and the way we look at Bitcoin is value is valuation compared uh, to gold, and uh, it, it's an interesting animal. You know, uh, uh, these ETFs have been out, and since then, Bitcoin has dropped, which is which may sound a bit. Um, a bit surprising. We're looking at it. We do not advise on it. But uh, gold is a nice currency you cannot print if you believe in the end of the fiat currencies as well. And I was looking at your tactical asset allocation matrix. Most of it is above my head, but about five or six percent in gold was how I read it. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Depending on the profiles, we, we, we like some defensive assets that are yielding, such as money market funds. They work very well. You know, you'll get your four, four and a half percent this year. Without risk, take it. And gold for us is something that we keep uh, for, uh, we are looking at rate cuts, three or three, maybe four uh, from the second half of the year. This should be good for gold. We like gold for its uh, geopolitical safe haven status and also because it's a currency you, you, you cannot print. Final word, Maurice, on our own back yard. The world's IPO boom market is in this region at the moment, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Saudi Arabia and others. How do we play that in 2024? What are the opportunities? What are the risks? Uh, well, first, the IPOs are in general of, uh, of high quality. They are well received. And, in, and it's uh, usually interesting, of course, do your own research and trust uh, your bank for that. Within the region, we are uh, we are bullish on the UAE. And now the UAE, and it's not because we are a UAE bank, you know, that we've been neutral in, uh, in the past for us. The UAE and, uh, and to some extent Dubai in particular is uh, deepening the markets with these IPOs because it's not just about the companies that are coming to the stock market that you buy. It's also about the impact it has on the broader market and its perception from international investors. Maurice, great talk to you. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. The thoughts of Maurice Gravier. He is the Group Chief Investment Officer of Emirates NBD. Investments go up and investments go down. Before putting your hard-earned money into any investment, Dubai Eye 103.8 advises you to always do your own background research. Ensure you're informed to navigate the market and any potential pitfalls. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk jobs this morning because mixed messages over the weekend. The good news, America created 353,000 new jobs, well ahead of expectations. 
nation's job market is healthy. And yet Deutsche Bank becoming the latest bank, the latest big company to announce a raft of layoffs. Deutsche Bank said it plans to slash three and a half thousand jobs worldwide. Here to make sense of it all. And what it means for us here in the UAE is senior consultant within banking and financial services at the recruitment firm Robert Walters, Assad Jamil. Assad, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Morning. Thank you very much. Is the glass half full or half empty when it comes to the job market? This region, I'd say it's it's half full. There are a few names out there which have had layoffs. Uh, Citibank being a big one of them. You know, massive sort of setup over here. They've reported a global net loss of $1.8 billion. And that's seen effects over here. Names like Deutsche Bank as an example. There's even Barclays, another example, where they've had a few layoffs more on the non-revenue generating side in this region. So that would include roles like client servicing or operations in its core. Because often, even if the, the Middle East is a booming market, and we know one of the most booming IPO markets in the world, for example, that's a banking and financial services job. But when the, the, the news comes through from head office that there's three and a half thousand jobs going worldwide, every region will have a quota. And even if the Middle East boss says, I can't get enough bodies on the ground here, business is booming, you've got a quota and you've got to fill it. And I know we've, we heard that with Facebook. And this was, what, 18 months ago, maybe a year ago, where Facebook announced worldwide job cuts and every region had to take some. And the regional boss of Facebook took to LinkedIn saying, look, we've had to let some really, really good people go. If an ex-Facebooker applies for a job, don't think that they were let go because they weren't good enough. It's because we had to let really, really good people go because we had a quota. And that's not uncommon, is it, within multinational companies? What are you seeing? No, you're right. Uh, it's definitely the case where quotas have to be met in a lot of cases, but it comes down to saying how many people actually exist here, you know, what's the function over here, where can we cut costs. So in Citibank's case, and I take this very particularly because it's one of the only few international banks in this region which has 2,000 people almost, whereas the other international banks are probably a small percentage of it. Because the Middle East is one of those uh, shining beacons of hope in a pretty challenging global market, they don't want to necessarily let go of people go where it comes to revenue generation. But where they can offset this, maybe move someone, offshore them into another cheaper area of employment, as an example, on contracts, again, just another example, then I see why it happens. But in the financial services space, that's not necessarily been the case so far. What about the general trend for organizations becoming leaner? Jane Fraser, you mentioned Citigroup there. The chief executive globally is Jane Fraser, obviously Mm -hmm. based in the United States. And she says 2024 is going to be a turning point, not just for her bank, but for the financial services industry about being leaner. Facebook shares up 20% on Friday, the fourth best day in their history. And Facebook doesn't have a bad history Mm -hmm. and 20-year history now. And I was listening to the commentary over the weekend and, and Mark Zuckerberg's conference call talking about we are better as a leaner organization. Facebook's gone from 87,000 people a couple of years ago to 67,000 now. I mean, that is a significant job cut, isn't it? And he says we're a better organization for it. Is this the way the wind is blowing? Globally, for sure. In the Middle East, for banking, financial services, I say that might not necessarily happen here. Maybe because the setup they've always had is fairly lean in this region. Uh, if, if there was the case for some of the bigger entities, you can even say it for some local banks, which again, we haven't seen yet, luckily, for me at least. Uh, I can't see that happening, but it all comes back to saying, why are the people here? What's their function? 
you know, why are they employed over here? Okay, finally, we're only a couple of minutes left. Let's look at the good news then. People are still hiring in your field, banking and financial services at the moment, in the region. Where are they hiring and who are they hiring? Hot places and hot sectors within banking and finance. So hottest sector right now is definitely private banking. That's where a lot more of the hiring activity is going on. Locations-wise, UAE is still a really hot one. Saudi is getting there. Interestingly, Oman made a bit of, you know, our radar made, made the headlines for us because there are a few funds setting up over there. They want to inject more money into the market. So there should be some hiring over there. More on the investment side, though. And um, are you seeing more? You, you've got what well, we had last week, Ras Al Khaimah setting up its, mm-hmm. uh, its financial services hub. I don't know, is Robert Walters going to be setting up an office in Rack anytime soon? <laughs> We'll be driving there more, <laughs> setting up hopefully soon, but for now it's just the, the drive. Within the UAE, where's most of the action for you? Where's most of your revenue, to put it bluntly? Is it Abu Dhabi around ADGM or is it Dubai around DIFC? I'd still say a lot more work is done in Dubai. ADGM has a lot of prospect. It's definitely a challenger for us as well, but it's getting there. And salaries in 2024 for people in banking and financial services. If, if you're a bank, if private banking's hot and you've got some hot shot, say those words carefully, private bankers, and you want to retain them, I guess you've got, to, you've got to sweeten the deal. You've got to give them, what, a pay rise, extra bonuses? What are you seeing in terms of retention or counter offers when XYZ Bank offers these hot shot hmm. bankers a good job? Definitely bigger challenge getting people out of their positions. In some cases, they're retaining them with higher salaries. Uh, but the variable model still stays a big talking point, you know, better bonuses for private bankers, commissions, trying to, you know, boost them up. Uh, but that's definitely become a bigger challenge this year already, one month in. But your phone's still ringing. Absolutely. <laughs> Good to know, Asad. We'll let you get back to work. Thanks for getting up early this morning. Asad Jamil, Senior Consultant, Banking and Financial Services with the recruitment firm Robert Walters. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. More numbers now. I feel like I've just given a slew of them, but we do have a survey that's come out from the guys at Zabuni, mobile commerce and, and, and payment people. They have put together a report looking at how we want to buy things and be served. A couple of headline figures that have jumped out here. Um, One is that we would rather be served by a person rather than a chatbot or some form of AI. That's 90% of us. I'm joined by Rami Asaf, the CEO and co-founder of Zabuni. Morning, Rami. Good morning. Right. So you, or rather you, Gov, on your behalf, spoke to a thousand people. We're not buying this AI business for customer service. That seems to be what the numbers uh, show. Um, in fact, nine out of ten prefer human interaction versus a bot or AI. And um, I think we we do get a little swept away with the rise of AI and its uh, place in in our in society and its place in making things more productive and replacing humans. But the data suggests otherwise. It suggests that people aren't ready for that sort of. Uh, that rate of change is, is not there. We're not ready, or is it just that the AI is not good enough yet? A good question. could be a combination of those two things. Um, you know, Noam Chomsky, uh, he referred to ChatGPT as plagiarism software, uh, which basically says it knows what to say, but it doesn't know why it's saying it. And one of the major factors in why people prefer human interaction is because we're social in nature, and we crave that. Uh, personal attention, and we know it when it's real, and we know when it's inauthentic. 
Okay, so if people don't want it, why are companies investing in it and using it? I think it, it does play a role in terms of automating certain processes, okay? There's repetitive tasks that you can automate that you can use AI for. But when it comes to real creativity, it's not there yet. Okay. One of the other numbers that jumped out at me here was that 85% of us want to use WhatsApp for customer service and inquiries. That was the, the platform of choice. Presumably, though, with a real person at the other end of the WhatsApp number, not automated? It can be. Uh, so there, let's talk about WhatsApp first as a channel. Uh, we kind of all know that it's being used every day. We all use it. 90% of UAE's population uses it every day. Um, and it plays a significant uh, role in how we spend our time, especially on our mobile phones. Now, uh, we know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears. So if we look at how consumers like to use WhatsApp, it kind of presents that uh, perfect temperature where email is too cold and phone calls are too hot and WhatsApp or chat is just right. Does it matter who's reaching out to who, though? And this is a personal opinion, but I've just, we were talking recently when we were coming, brainstorming ideas for the show um, about the number of companies, particularly real estate, that are using WhatsApp for effectively spam, cold calling. Um, I find it more invasive personally than an email spam or a text spam. WhatsApp feels like a bit more of a personal medium to me. Reach out to book an appointment if I'm the one doing, initiating the, the conversation or to get information about something fine but not coming into my WhatsApp uninvited. What did your survey find about how WhatsApp is best used? I agree with you on the spam and it is being abused. And I think that's just a growing pain of the channel and a growing pain of the platform. Uh, over time, that will get mitigated. You know, there will be spam inboxes and stuff like that, just like there is on email. What we do know is that people, once they want to get in touch with you via WhatsApp as a business, you better be there and you better respond quickly and have something uh, good to say. Um, so I agree with you that it's being abused by many businesses, but it can't be ignored by, by all. Is the sort of the SMS spam dead? I'm looking at a, a survey that you looked at, a study by Infota, where they sent out 7 million SMS messages. How many people responded? Uh, I think it was three and, and none of them purchased or may, continued on. Uh, spam... You, we can all agree is basically a, a sorry SMS is a spam channel, and it's where you go. It's where things go to die. It's yeah. Great, yeah, I consider it a filtering inbox right. now. So, what does all of this mean for companies' cost in comms? Where should they be investing at the moment that that this survey shows that it works, and how does it compare to to other investments? Does it, are we bringing the cost down or, or is it going up? Well, it, it could it will look different for different sizes of companies, but what we do know is that. And it doesn't have to cost you anything because WhatsApp, there's still a free version that we can all use. And as a business, you can just use that and put your phone number. It's just important for you as a business to identify that this is a channel. Consumers like using it. They expect, you know, 86% of consumers expect you to have that as a channel when they want to get in touch with you, purchase something, inquire. So uh, you have to have the minimum investment of at least the free WhatsApp, or you can go to WhatsApp for business, have a little bit more auto reply there, or you can go WhatsApp API, which would start allowing you to automate certain functions and having chat bots and other things that you can um, do a hybrid approach where some of it is automated and some of it is a real human on the other end. 
Oh, and that's my next question. When we come to costs, if people don't want automation, what does that mean for staffing costs and the, the number of people and the type of skill sets that we're employing here? Businesses that invest in their relationship with their customers tend to do better. And when they spend time, it might be a time investment that they're making, but that investment would pay off because today, the only way you can really differentiate yourself as a business is how you engage with your customers. Rami Asaf, CEO and co-founder of Zabuni, speaking to us um, about their new survey, having a look at how we all want to be contacted and how we want to engage with the people selling to us. Nine out of ten of us are having no truck with AI or chatbots at the moment. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.